Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like to make a couple of points and then just heap up some verses from God's Word that show the work of God precedes our faith, showing our faith by further witnesses to be the result and evidence of God's work. We don't get things started with our faith. God gets everything started, and our faith is a result of His work. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let me read verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. I would like to make the point that there is real salvation, there is doctrinal salvation, and there is perceptive salvation. Don't memorize the terms. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, all that is under consideration is how the gospel is perceived. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, those that are lost, reprobates, un- men unborn again, how do they perceive the gospel? It's foolishness to them. Second clause of the verse, But unto us which are saved, the preaching of the cross is perceived to be the power of God. It is the great difference that God makes in the human heart as to how the gospel is perceived. When we come down to verse 22, The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews... It's perceived as a stumbling block because the Jews wanted a sign and instead they get a dead Messiah. Resurrected for sure. And under the Greeks, the preaching of Christ is foolishness because it's perceived that way to them because they were looking for philosophical wisdom that would match their fathers in Athens. Verse 24, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, The preaching of Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Notice it's those that are called. The gospel doesn't make the change. God's change in a person causes them to perceive the gospel differently. And that's where we differ in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 from so many. When we look at verse 18, we see clearly that the preaching of the cross has never taken someone perishing and saved them. A person has to be saved already in order for them to perceive in the gospel that it is the power of God. And then it went on to say that if a person is called in verse 24, then the gospel is perceived to be the power and the wisdom of God. But it's only to those that are called. That's God's work of choosing them first because the calling is defined in verses 26 and 27 where it says, ye see your calling that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world. And this is an important little distinction here. When we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, for the preaching, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. So many take Romans 1.16 and say that when we preach the gospel, we're able to take a sinner dead in trespasses and sins and save him. But no... I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for everyone that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. When they hear the preaching of the gospel, they are able to perceive in it the power of God. The gospel itself is not the power. The gospel is just news and information about the power of God that saves. The power of God that saves is His choice before the world began. The Lord Jesus Christ's death on the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us. It is so powerful and requires such great power that Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that it took the same power to raise Jesus Christ's dead body out of the tomb as it takes to get us to believe. The same power. Jesus was quickened in his flesh so that his body came back to life and were quickened in the deadness of our natures by being brought to life by God through being born again. 
And so we perceive the gospel differently. That's why in Romans 1.15, which is never mentioned by those that worship free will, so then as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. See, Paul wasn't saying, unleash me in Rome and I will empty your brothels of all their prostitutes. He said, I can't wait to get to Rome to preach to you that are the elect of God in Rome, so that we might be encouraged together by the mutual faith, both of you and me, because I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because everyone that believes knows that it is the information concerning the power of God saving us. And that's a different way of looking at the role of faith and the role of the gospel. If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians 2... Let me remind you of another passage that tells us that the preaching of the cross doesn't take men from a state of condemnation to a state of justification. It reveals men who are condemned, and it reveals men who are justified. This is a horrifying passage to many, and it is a sober one. 2 Corinthians 2 at 14. Now thanks be unto God. And that's what we're doing today. We're thanking God for everything He has done for us, including our faith. Thank you, Jerry, for describing that in your prayer. Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the saver, of his knowledge by us in every place. It didn't matter how many people responded to Paul's preaching. He always triumphed in every place. And here's how he describes that constant triumph when he preached. For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the one... We are the savour of death unto death. Those are the ones that perish. Because the preaching of Jesus Christ to them is foolishness. And so the sweet aroma comes up into heaven. That those God has left in their sins to their own deserts. And by His pure, righteous, and holy, sovereign choice, that sweet aroma comes up because they reject the gospel. They hear the plain message backed up by eyewitness reports that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead and they mock it and scorn it. And so it becomes a sweet aroma that comes up into heaven confirming their death in trespasses and sins. To the one, verse 16, we are the savour of death unto death and to the other, the savour of life unto life. It is a sweet aroma when we preach the gospel, and some respond. Those that respond show God's already done a work in them because they're already alive. It's the savour of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? The apostle says in verse 16, the gospel is never the savour of death unto life. Only the Lord can be the power from death unto life. When we are passed from death into life, it's the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel just shows it up. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ crucified is laid out before men and commended in the best way reasonably possible to their consciences, as the Bible describes, their response is either an aroma that comes up into heaven of those that are lost, proving it by their rejection of the greatest message ever heard, or... It is the evidence of those that are born again that are the justified, elect children of God. Verse 17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. The apostle was not going to change his message in order to get a larger hearing or to get more responses. Nowhere does it teach the gospel brings a person from death unto life. The gospel gospel brings their life to light. Think of a text with me. 2 Timothy 1.9 Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. 
not according to our works, but according to His own grace and purpose, which was given us in Christ before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel brings life and immortality to light. The gospel is unable to bring life and immortality. We cannot carry life and immortality anywhere on this earth to men like Rome's priests carry the real presence of Jesus Christ in their communion sunburst. We can only bring the gospel that brings it to light. I want you to think about the perception of how men receive the gospel. Now look at Galatians chapter 5. I made reference to this passage this morning, but let's look at it again. Remember, Galatians is six chapters dedicated against Jewish legalists who were corrupting the churches of Galatia. And the apostle did battle with them in these six chapters. Now, in verse 1 of chapter 5, he says, Stand fast. How do you stand and go fast at the same time? Fast here means fastened, not how quickly you're moving. Stand fastened, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And be not again in, be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. The yoke of bondage is Moses' law, that you have to keep everything written in, from Genesis to Deuteronomy in order to be saved. That's a yoke of bondage. Jesus Christ's yoke is easy, and His burden is light, and you can come unto Him for rest, because the work is finished. He said in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Verse 2, Behold, I, Paul, say unto you, that if ye be circumcised, Christ shall profit you nothing. Does that mean that these believers in the churches of Galatia, who had been baptized, would lose their place in the book of life and end up going to hell because they had added circumcision to the gospel? Is that what it means? Christ shall profit you nothing. No, it does not mean that. If they were to have their faith somewhat overthrown by adding circumcision to salvation, Christ would still profit them in a legal way. Their standing in heaven wouldn't change. You can't lose your salvation. None of the elect shall perish. Who shall anything the charge of God's elect? Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Then what? Do these words mean? Christ shall profit you nothing doctrinally. So I've moved from perception of salvation to the doctrine of salvation. If these Galatians were to persist in adding circumcision to the work of Christ, Christ becomes of none effect. Because now you're putting yourself under the law and you need to keep the whole law and it doesn't really matter what Christ did because you're looking to salvation by the works of the law. Verse 3, For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Verse 4, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. Now there are those that run into this last clause of verse 4 that says, ye are fallen from grace, and they think that you can lose your salvation. But you cannot lose your salvation. Grace and the purpose of God was given to you before the world began. And it was fulfilled legally on the cross of Calvary when the Lord Jesus Christ said that He would lose none of them. And He said, it is finished. And the Holy Spirit will regenerate every single one of them because there is a golden chain from God's foreknowledge to final glorification in Romans 8 that cannot be broken. So what does it mean? Ye are fallen from the doctrine of grace. Ye are fallen from the right understanding of grace, is what it means. It should be evident in the text itself, because it says, Christ is become of no effect unto you, whosoever of you are justified by the law. 
Is anyone justified by the law? No. It is only in their doctrinal understanding that they think they are justified by the law. So if you just read the verse, you know when it says ye are fallen from grace, it just means ye are fallen from the right understanding of grace because you think you're justified by the law. So you're messed up mentally. It doesn't change your born-again nature. It doesn't change your legal standing in heaven. It's just that you're doctrinally confused. And the reason the gospel is preached and the reason we pursue the elect is so that they'll be doctrinally established in the truth for the assurance of their souls, for the glory and adorning of the doctrine of Jesus Christ, and for fruitfulness that will come from them. And so we have this example. Don't let anybody tell you that you can lose your salvation and go to Galatians 5, 4. You just say, well, then I assume you're getting there by being justified by the law. No one can be justified by the law. If there's anything the New Testament teaches, it's that. And so when we look in the text, we know that it's only in their mind. It's a, it's a doctrinal difference. Their, their legal standing wouldn't, stand, wouldn't change before God based on whether they believe that it was Christ alone, which is the truth, or whether it was Christ plus circumcision, which is heresy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, a few months ago, I preached to you a series of messages that circumstances in this church and in certain circles have made a doctrinal heresy, and that is preterism, the prophetic scheme that every single thing taught in the New Testament that appears to be future, actually was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ physically and bodily returned to earth. Yes, there was a resurrection of the dead. Yes, we're in the new heavens and the new earth now. Don't you like them? Yes, there's already been the great day of judgment. The Church of Christ and certain Reformed circles have fallen subject to preterism. So... Forgetting that for a moment, let's just look at these words, starting at verse 14. 2 Timothy 2.14, Of these things, put them in remembrance. This is Paul to Timothy telling him how to be a pastor. Of these things, put them in remembrance, charging them before the Lord, that they strive not about words to no profit, but to the subverting of the hearers. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase unto more ungodliness. And their word will eat as doth a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Oh, the faith of some had been overthrown by the lying heresies of Hymenaeus and Philetus. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And that's where we rest. You know, I showed you last week in the grammar section of our second service that in Galatians 4, 9... Paul said that after ye have known God, yea, rather, known of God, why would you go back to the beggarly elements of a religion of bondage? It's more important that God knows us than we know God. And we want to remember that order because we've been made accepted in the Beloved and it's God accepting us in Christ that's the great acceptance of salvation. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that. Now, Philippians chapter 2. And my big mountain of verses is shrinking as the clock tells me that I will not be able to bury you as thoroughly as I had hoped. Philippians chapter 2. Lord, we love your word. We love every verse of it. We love every word of every verse. Philippians chapter 2, you love the verses 
from 5 through 11, let this mind be in you as it begins and then it ends, that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Verse 12, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. What a passage. Thank you, Lord, for making things so simple for us. It is our job to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. There are things that we work out. We have faith. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We confess with our mouth that He is Lord indeed. We add to our faith virtue. We add to our virtue knowledge. And the other items that I mentioned to you from 2 Peter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. We have the work of faith with love from Galatians 5, 6. We have the work of faith and the labor of love and the patience of hope from 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 4. We are working out. The description is actually given here of things we should be working out. And children, I hope you hear this one. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. We don't complain and we don't fight. Which means we don't murmur and we don't dispute. Because we want to be blameless and harmless the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. And we do that by working out what God's worked in. We love the brethren. We love the worship of God. We change our music. We change our speech. We change our clothing from immodest to modest. And we can go down a long list that's a wonderful list because it's the precious commandments of God and they're not grievous. They're for our profit and His glory. But we work out everything that He already worked in us. It is, it is very discouraging and frustrating to know that the majority of pulpits today are designing the service in such a way to think that they are going to work into men what this text tells us only God can work in. I want to help you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to give all diligence to those eight things of 2 Peter 1 so that you can make your calling and election sure. That's you working them out and adding them on top of each other until you abound in these things and have a very fruitful life. But God did all the work by putting it inside. And that is what this text is teaching us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're already saved. Just work out what God's put in there. And he tells us a few things here, the murmurings and the disputings, and being without offense in this evil and crooked generation. And then it tells us in that 13th verse, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If a person ever has the will to receive Jesus Christ in any way, to receive the gospel, to believe the gospel, to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, to make a confession with his mouth. If he's ever willing, it's because God worked it in there by giving him a new man. And it is the Lord that changed our wills. We're thankful that there's a God in heaven that doesn't believe in free will. We're thankful that he has a free will and he's overridden our will. Because if he had left me to have my will, this is one place I wouldn't be. And I thank and praise His holy name through Jesus Christ, my Lord. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, By faith Enoch walked with God and was not because God took him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Then the next verse, which we know better. But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Whether it's Enoch or you, whether it's Enoch or me, where do we get the faith that pleases God? God worked it in us. In verse 13 of Philippians 2, It is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure.
when you know that there's an opportunity to serve another brother in Christ, and you know it's going to cost you money, and it's going to cost you time, and maybe they talk more than they should, so it's going to cost you more time than that, and you are going to have to go serve them. But you don't have to go serve them. You want to go serve them because it's a labor of love. What made that change in you that you would do such a thing? Why would you get baptized when 95% of those that call themselves Christians can't even figure out the doctrine of baptism? Why would you want to go be made a fool for Jesus' sake by having another man dunk you with your clothes on in a pool in public? That's ridiculous. That's what Naaman said when Elisha told him to try baptism for leprosy. But his servants said, My Lord, you would have paid a great sum for to be free from your leprosy. What's wrong about dipping in Jordan? And you know what? So many don't want that simple Baptist baptism of a grown-up person going out there and letting someone else stuff them under the water and then raising them back up and have to get toweled off and cleaned up. You're being a fool for Jesus' sake. Amen and amen. Did it work for Naaman? Seven times he dipped, and when he came up, he was as fresh as Natalia Gloria and her skin because that was the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord in the New Testament is to do something. It's to be baptized. The willingness to do it. The actual doing of it. God worked it in and we work it out. Uh, what can we work out this afternoon? Before our heads hit the pillow tonight, what can we work out about our salvation? Is it patience with your spouse? Because you're going to add some patience to your faith? Is it gentleness? Is it goodness? Is it love? Is it joy? All these things the Bible teaches were to add to our faith. God worked it in us. The point of our study is the role of faith in salvation. So when we see someone believing, which is to will, to choose, that the record given in the Bible of Jesus of Nazareth is true, God worked it in. And we're thankful for that. Faith does not originate in man. He was born spiritually dead without ability or desire to believe God, and it's proven by many scriptures. God must give man the ability to believe and draw forth that faith by the power of his spirit, which he does. Let's just look at a few verses and just rejoice in the thoroughness of the Bible if we read it closely enough. 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. The two points that I covered so far were to you to think about the perceptive, doctrinal, or real salvation that is found in some places. In some places it's not talking about really falling from grace or really making Christ of an effect. It's just in your doctrinal understanding of that. And then I showed you from Philippians 2 how important it is for us to realize and we give God all the glory that anything we ever choose to do and anything we ever actually do that is pleasing to Him, God worked it in us in that great work of regeneration. Do you know that you have a nature within you that is created in righteousness and true holiness? It is called your new man. It's described in Ephesians 4.24 and other places. God put that in, and we come together as a church to draw it out of each other. And we lay the gospel of Christ crucified out before men. And a man who's born again can find it very hard to resist. Because God draws through that gospel, that new man. The new man already knows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God internally. But the preaching of the cross brings it to his understanding. That is how faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can't preach the word of God to a sinner dead in trespasses and sins and infuse faith into him for him to believe the message you're giving him. All you can do is bring forth the faith into activity that God already put in him. And that's what we're going to get into in the second half of Romans 10 when we return there. I'm not going to spend long on these verses. I just want a few to delight your soul. 
1 Peter 1, 21. Now Peter, like Paul, is writing a long sentence here that begins in verse 17. And I'll, I'll just refer to the fact that in verse 19, he is speaking of the redemptive price for our souls, which was the precious blood of Christ. And then in verse 20, that this Jesus verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. God raised Jesus Christ up from the dead so that your faith and hope would be in God because Jesus Christ is alive at his right hand. The words I want are the first five. Who by him do believe? If you believe, it is by God's choice and by God's power. He has exercised his will toward you. James chapter 2 and verse 5. Oh, we don't want to sing Jesus saves and then have to have an asterisk down at the bottom as long as we let him save us. We just want to sing Jesus saves. Have you heard the joyful sound? Jesus saves. Do you think he's going to ask anyone to come out of their graves in the last day? The righteous or the wicked? He said in John chapter 5 and verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Know that he, notice that even there, it doesn't say anything about a decision for Jesus. It says those that have done good. Not that they have earned their way to heaven. It is the evidence that they are the righteous ones of God. Jesus isn't going to ask them. He isn't going to approach cemeteries and say, Is there anyone here that would like to join me before the great white throne of the great day of God? He is going to say, Come forth! And every grave will be ripped in every cemetery and every mausoleum. And from the bottom of the ocean, the DNA will be put back together. And every man will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. But you know, in verse 25, right in front of that, it says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. That is verse 25. Verse 28 is, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all in the grave shall hear his voice. Right. So there's two resurrections in John chapter 5. One is regeneration, and one is the resurrection of physical bodies in the last day. Jesus doesn't ask in either case. He says, live. If you want a text for that one, it's Ezekiel 16. God passed by and saw that infant unswaddled and uncut and said, Live. He said to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead was bound and he came forth. And he said, loose him and let him go. And that's the most the gospel ever gets to do, is loose a man and let him go from the bondage of false religion and false understanding and guilt and shame of his life. But the life was given by the Lord Jesus Christ. The first time I understood that, I was 19 years old. Poor than a church mouse with a little wife and a little daughter sitting at my dining room table wanting to know the truth of the gospel and reading John chapter 5 and verses 25 through 29 and seeing the two resurrections and I had a resurrection. I cleared my chair without my feet pressing against the floor. I thank God and a little woman that's sitting in here knows about that event because... I knew that I'd been called into life. That a foolish and wicked and rebellious teenage Johnny motorcycle loved Jesus Christ because he first loved me and called me into life. And so I turn you to a few places like James 2 and verse 5. It says, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world 
rich in faith. How does a poor person in this world get rich in faith? God's chosen them to it. Because God has chosen where He dispenses faith so that He can raise up the poor and the base and the foolish and those things that are not, like all of us, so that He can bring to naught all those fancy churches that think they're something by their networking and social gospel that they're preaching today and their ballot efforts and passing out flyers to get our present president reelected, all in the name of their Jesus. But God's chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. Thank you, Lord. Otherwise, I wouldn't have made the cut. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. What is born of God? Faith is born of God, according to this text. So what is the order? The ordo salutis, the Latin for the order of salvation. How does it take place? We're born again, then we believe. Faith is born of God, according to 1 John 5, 4. The first verse has already taught us, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born, that is a present tense believing in a perfect tense, being born has been born, being born is necessary in order to believe. Look at Acts chapter 13. Sister Rhonda, it's in the list. I wouldn't overlook it. Someday I will, and you can remind me that it belongs there. Acts 13 and verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, and this is how we ought to leave this assembly today. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. Acts chapter 15, where James interprets the book of Amos, it was about you and me, and we should be glad and glorify the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. We don't believe in conditional election at all. It's unconditional election. And when a person believes, it's because they ordained to eternal life. They don't involve themselves in eternal life by their believing. God involved them in eternal life by ordaining them. And as a consequence and as a result of that, they believe the gospel. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I know that Arminians like to talk about Jesus Christ being the great shepherd of the sheep. And they love to have children's meetings, which you can't find anywhere in the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. But they have children's meetings. Fathers teach children, if you want to know where they get taught. Fathers teach children. I appreciate Matthew using Psalm 34. Come here, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Hezekiah told God, if you'll give me 15 more years, I will convey the truth to my children and my children's children. And that's why men ought to be very serious about being parents. Don't you dare have a child unless you intend to bring it up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to teach it the fear of God and to be like Solomon, my son, my son, my son, my son, my son, give me thine heart, my son. But these Arminians will say, do you want to be a sheep of Jesus? Then all you need to do is invite Jesus into your heart to be a sheep of Jesus. First of all, there's no place in the Bible that says invite Jesus into your heart. The text they abuse is Revelation 3.20, and it was never addressed to sinners. It was addressed to the church at Laodicea. And they thought that they were high and mighty without a personal relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is pointing out how they were naked, blind, destitute, and they needed to have personal fellowship with him. They needed to be communing with him. So that, oh, it's so confusing, it's so confused, it's, such, it's so heretical, and it's bred itself in our nation until all you have to do is look in most Christian circles and you can't tell the difference between the average Christian today and the average person of the world because they don't understand the doctrine of salvation. Most of them aren't saved. John chapter 10. Look at this text. I can remember around that same age, maybe 18 years of age, 
being confused by this because I was still with an Arminian mentality that I need to believe in order to become a sheep of Jesus. But Jesus said to the Jews that did not believe on him in verse 25, in verse 26 he said, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. In verse 29, my Father which gave them me. There's God in election giving them to Jesus. Jesus Christ giving to them eternal life. That's the legal phase of salvation. And then they believe because of those things. You're a sheep first, then you believe. And the Bible has this order over and over and over again for all of us. Matthew chapter 11. I need to quit very soon. But I've only got a little dirt spread over you and I don't look like a Baptist yet. I want to bury you under a few more verses of God's Word. I love every word of it. It's all important. We want to build our structure of truth from every verse in the Bible. Matthew chapter 11. Most, Most do not understand a verse like this. They don't teach a verse like this. And we're thankful for a verse like this because we know where we are in this verse. Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father. And no man knoweth the Son, but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. If you ever understand the gospel and choose to believe it, it's because God revealed it to you. And when someone does not, it is because God has hid it from them. This is what Jesus saw, and this has caused Jesus to lift up his eyes to heaven and bless his Father because it seemed good in his sight that it was the prostitutes and the tax collectors in Israel that believed on him, and it was the Pharisees and seminary-trained scribes and lawyers that rejected him. And he said, because it seemed good in thy sight, you've hid these things from these wise and prudent men, And you've revealed them to these little babes. I want to tell you, when you go to the Lord Jesus Christ, go as a babe. I am but a little child, let's say with Solomon. I do not know how to go out or to come in. Give me understanding. He is able and he's willing to do that. Because it's the next verses that say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You're in Matthew. Turn over four chapters to Matthew 16. A common text. I've made reference to it already today. But look at the difference that God makes in men's understanding. Verse 13 of Matthew 16. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist. Some... Elias, others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou. Do you understand that you're blessed this day? Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Praise His holy name. The Lord Jesus Christ, speaking through Abraham, told the rich man in hell that even if Lazarus was to rise from the dead, and that would be quite an evangelistic tool for a man to come back from the dead, it wouldn't do any good. Because if they won't hear the law and the prophets that were read in the synagogues, neither would they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. Because it's not by flesh and blood, no matter how you might devise the method, it is revealed from heaven. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, like Peter did here, it is a blessing from heaven. God must bless first from heaven, 
then we work that salvation out by confessing Him. So when we go to Romans 10, we know that if a man believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus, it's because God put it in that man. The man does not believe or confess in order to be saved in the sense of election or justification or regeneration. He believes to have assurance of the phase of salvation that is yet to come, glorification in heaven. Because God works it in, we work it out to make our calling and election sure so that we know that in that great day we shall have an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Look at Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, 29. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake. I want you to notice that to believe on Jesus Christ, it is given to you by God. It is a gift to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. No man can come unto me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Twice in John chapter 6. And they shall all be taught of God. Therefore everyone that's been taught of God cometh to me. John 6 and verse 45. God must teach us on the inside in the new man. Then when we preach the gospel it draws it forth. And we want to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Acts chapter 11 verse 21. I'm increasing my pace. I'm about to quit. There's many more. I had 45 to give you. What have I given you? Four or five? Acts chapter 11, verse 21. It says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned unto the Lord. That's because the hand of the Lord was there with their preaching. You want the hand of the Lord to take us by the nape of our neck and redirect us like He redirected Saul of Tarsus. Saul didn't get saved in the road to Damascus. He'll tell you that if you'll read his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1. God had counted Saul faithful long before that. He was just ignorant. He said, I obtained mercy because I served him ignorantly in unbelief. As soon as he knew who Jesus of Nazareth was, he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And all the Lord did was just redirect that man. What a zeal he had for the Lord. He had been chosen before the world began, justified the cross, already born again, but he was making Christ of none effect by his ignorance of the truth of the gospel, which Ananias gave to him when he came to his house in Damascus. And after three days of eating meat, regaining strength and praying, he walked into the synagogue in Damascus and they got an earful. Because that man was a learned man in the religion of the Jews, And he was able to take those Old Testament prophecies by God's enablement and preach Christ to them. That was Acts chapter 11 and verse 21. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2 and I'll end. 2 Timothy chapter 2. A minister often wonders if I would have preached differently, if I could have preached better if my letter had been organized more efficiently, if I'd have used more scriptures, or if I'd have used better scriptures, they might have repented. Well, here's Paul to Timothy, telling Timothy how to be a perfect minister, but then he tells what the conversion of a person turns on. And it's not Timothy. Verse 23 of 2 Timothy 2, But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes. This is good ministerial advice inspired by God through Paul to Timothy. Foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender stripes. It gets men debating and fighting. Foolish and unlearned questions. We don't cater to them. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. That's everything the minister can do. That's inspired wisdom right there. For a minister to be perfect in approaching those that are not converted. If God, if God, peradventure, 
will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. They are under the power of the devil. They oppose the truth. They contradict themselves. They need to repent. And it's not up to Peter. It's up to God to make that difference. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, if you want to go out of here and work out your salvation with fear and trembling, if you want to go out of here and add to your faith the things listed in Second Peter 1, it's because God's worked it in you. It's because God, peradventure, did give you repentance to the acknowledging of the truth. And so we ought to bless His holy name for having done that for us. It is an incredible blessing. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 says that we are bound to give thanks always to God for His great blessing of sanctifying us by His Spirit that we would believe the truth of the gospel. No wonder that such everlasting love demands an everlasting song from us. Let's be the most thankful people that the people of God have ever had, not for our praise, but the praise of the Savior who loved us and gave Himself for us. Let the Lord Jesus Christ look down from heaven as He walks among His seven golden candlesticks and say, that church in Greenville, South Carolina, they're thankful that I saved them. They know that it's all of me and all the grace of God. And look at their fear and trembling at seeking to work out that salvation that I worked in them. Let me bless them. Father, bless them. Father, keep them. Father, open the Word of God to them that they'll see even more precious, wonderful things out of Your Word. Oh, if you haven't believed on the Lord Jesus Christ today, you ought to do so this very minute. The testimony that God's given of Jesus of Nazareth is that He is the Son of God And as we read this morning from Psalm 110, He is seated at the right hand of God and He is going to fill the places where His enemies gather together with their dead bodies. Because He is Lord of all and He's coming back soon to judge this earth. If you have a desire to seek Him and to run to Him, it's because God has put that in you. And I hope by the preaching today, it's drawn it forth a little bit more and that you will run to Him and believe on Him and then ask, men and brethren, what shall I do? And we'll tell you what to do. You ought to get a Baptist baptism because that's what comes next. And Lord, we thank You for all these things. In Jesus' name.